Okay, this morning we're going to go back to 1 Peter. It's been a few weeks since we were here, but we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter. While you're turning, let me just make this comment. I know there's a lot of babies in the congregation. If they cry, that's okay. If any of the rest of you start crying, I'm going to take that personally. So, all right, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 10 this morning, and we've visited this passage before a couple of times, and there's three main focuses in this passage. The first one we saw was that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, then we saw the church, ourselves as believers, as those living stones that were added to build that church. Uh, or that spiritual house. And then the third aspect that we're going to look at today is the the priesthood of the believer. So let's start at verse 5, and we'll read down through verse 10. <clears throat> Excuse me, Second Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 5. The Bible says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We'll stop there. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you again for your word and for the things that you teach in it. And Lord, even as we read over passages that we've read before, you can teach us new things. It's not that the scripture changes, but that our mind is open to receive further truth as we believe and accept and live in the truth that you've given us. So Father, I pray that you would just reveal to us today the truth that you need us to understand that you want us to understand. And Father, I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and help us to understand what it means to be a priest in the church of God and how it should affect our lives and how we live. Lord, I need your help preaching. I need your help in speaking the truth. So fill me with your spirit now, I pray. Give me strength of voice. Give me strength of mind, strength of body, and wisdom that only can come from you. And may we hear from you today and be challenged in our minds and hearts so that we might be changed in how we live so that you get all the glory. We thank you now for this time. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I guess it was several weeks ago now, I mentioned as we got into 1 Peter chapter 2, there are a lot of believers that have a problem with the fact that the New Testament church is based very much so on Old Testament principles and Old Testament truths. In fact, many things that we do in our worship today are carryovers or reminiscent of specific practices that the Jews used in their worship within the synagogues in Judaism. Um, Just as an example, prayers. Okay, now we pray several times in our services, but in the Jewish synagogues, they had regular times of prayer and regular prayers that they said and prayed during the time, each time of the service. And in fact, in the very early church, they used those same prayers. So our prayers are a carryover from the Jewish synagogues. We sing hymns. They sang psalms. Many of our hymns are based on the psalms, you know, and praise to the Lord. So that's a, a, a very similar thing. The teaching or preaching methods is actually very similar to what we do now in our churches. They had a teacher who would read the scriptures, and then he would explain what those scriptures meant. That's exactly what we do here. And then even baptism. 
When Jesus commanded that we you know, bring the gospel to all creatures, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. That baptism is a carryover from Judaism. In, um, when, when the, uh, an un, uh, uh, let's see, what do you call it, a, a Gentile, thank you, when a Gentile would want to follow the Lord and want to become part of the Jewish religion or part of Judaism, they would literally be baptized. They would put off their clothing. They would go down in a, what's called a mikvah. It was a pool of water. And in coming up, that was their testimony that they were dying to the former life and any former associations they had. And then they were now going to be de- totally dedicated in their life to serving the God of Israel. And so that really is the same thing that we have in our baptism in the modern church. We, we go under the water, and it's a picture of us dying to ourselves, and then we're raised in newness of life to serve the Lord with that new life. And so a lot of the things that we do here in church are carryovers from Old Testament Judaism. Now, Peter here in 1 Peter uses Old Testament analogies because, remember, that's the only Bible they had. They didn't have the New Testament like we do. And so Peter is teaching from the Old Testament, teaching from these symbols of Judaism to help believers understand what the church is and what we are as believers in the church. And here in chapter 2, he gives us these pictures that I already mentioned. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple that is now called the church. It's not a physical structure. It's a spiritual house, as he explains. So Jesus is the cornerstone. And then we are the living stones, not dead stones. We are alive because we are in Christ. And so we become living stones that build up that church. And then he gets to this analogy here in verse 5 and in verse 9. And he says, not only are we the temple of God in being the church, but we are also the servants who worship and serve in that temple. And if we look at the Old Testament picture of the servants who worshiped or or who uh, led worship and served in the temple, they were called priests. And so he calls us as believers a priesthood. And he's comparing us to the Old Testament priests. Now, it's not a perfect comparison because there are differences. But Peter demonstrates in those analogies that we are as the living stones, the temple, and we are as the priesthood, the servants in that temple. And a few weeks ago, we studied that picture of us being living stones within that temple. And so this week, we're going to focus on this aspect of us being a a holy priesthood in the church. Now, in verse 5, Peter um, uses this term. He says, we are built up a spiritual house. He wants us to understand it's not about the building. It's not about the place you go to worship. This is a spiritual concept, but it is no less real than the actual building that we come to worship in. Together, we make up a spiritual temple called the church. And so he says it's a spiritual house. And it's because we are a spiritual house then that our functions as a church should be spiritual in nature. And it's defined not by the physical structure again, but because of our spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Those who function within this temple, Peter calls priests. And so we have to get a good understanding of what Peter means when he calls all of us priests as part of this holy priesthood. In verse 5, look at how he describes it. He says, you are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, it sounds like he's talking about the Old Testament priests, and there are some very close similarities, or at least pictures that we see from the Old Testament priesthood that we can apply here in, in, in the church today. It's not the same specific activity. It's not the same specific office, but it is very similar in character and function. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, we are different from Old Testament priests in that the old, in the Old Testament period, Israel had a priesthood, but in the church, we are the priesthood, and that includes all of us. There are not certain Christians who are priests. Peter is saying all of us are priests within the church. 
And as New Testament priests, we are different than um, in our functions, but we are similar in character, okay? So let me point out some differences first. As New Testament priests, obviously, we are not limited to the limitations or the guidelines that God regulated the Old Testament priesthood with as far as membership and functionality. In the Old Testament priesthood, defined by the law of God, only people, or only men, I should say, from the tribe of Levi could be priests. So it was limited to one specific tribe of the nation of Israel. And in fact, all the Levites didn't become priests. It was just certain of the Levites that became priests. God had very strict rules as far as who could become a priest. If you had any kind of defect in your body, you were uh, excluded from serving as a priest. And so only certain people, and literally in the line of Aaron, those were the ones that were in the priesthood, but there were limitations. And it started with, you had to be in the tribe of Levi. How many of you are from the tribe of Levi? Okay, none of us. And yet Peter says, all of us are priests. We all qualify to be priests because we are saved in Jesus Christ. That's a big difference. It's open to anyone who is a believer. In fact, it's not just open to, we are automatically priests as believers. In the Old Testament, the priests especially the high priest, he was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, and offer that sacrifice of blood for the sins of his, himself and his people. Now, how, many, how often are we allowed to come into the presence of God as a New Testament priesthood? Every time you pray, any time during the day or night, we are ushered into literally the presence of God. So we're not limited to one time a year. We're not limited to one place even, one restricted place. When Jesus died, that veil was torn and that symbolized that access to the Lord or to God the Father was open to all through Jesus Christ, not through the priests anymore. And so in Jesus Christ, we all are priests that have direct access to God at any time, any day. Now, if you look at those limitations, and there's more, but I'm not going to go through all of them, the limitations on Old Testament priests, those who transgressed those limitations were severely punished. God was serious about the limitations he put on the priesthood. In fact, we have some examples in Scripture. Korah, if you remember him, Korah was from the tribe of Reuben. Now, remember, Reuben was the oldest son of Jacob. Levi was not, so he was trying to figure out why do the Levites get to be priests and not the descendants of the oldest son. And he challenged Moses and Aaron on this, and he said, you're not the only holy people. God has called all of us holy, so all of us should be able to go worship, to offer sacrifices, to offer incense. And so God said, okay, if you want a challenge, we'll issue that challenge. And he told Moses, have him come with his men, and they're going to offer incense, and then have Aaron go and offer incense on the altar. And the ones whom God accepts, those are the ones that God has ordained to be in this position. As the story goes, God basically told Israel, separate yourselves from Korah and his men because I'm about to do something. And Moses said, okay, God is going to demonstrate his wrath upon those people who have challenged his authority and his uh, ordaining of certain people to be priests. And he says, get away from Korah. God's going to do something different and amazing that we've never seen before. And as we know, the scripture tells us, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all of his family and all of his belongings and all the people that followed him whole, and then it closed back up and they were gone. So God didn't deal lightly with people who challenged his limitations and the authority that he gave. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, King Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, and he got impatient because Samuel was late, and so he went ahead and did it himself. And that act of defiance against God's order caused him the kingship, and God separated the kingdom from him. And remember the story when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, captured it in war, and then finally it was being returned under David, and David, instead of 
following God's instructions of carrying the ark on poles and having the priests carry the ark, he put it on an ox cart to keep it safe because they had rough terrain they had to go over. And Uzzah was standing nearby and that ark started to wobble a little bit, looked like it was going to fall off, and so Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark of the covenant and immediately was struck dead because he violated the, the restrictions that God had put on his, the worship in the temple and the priesthood. So those restrictions were not light or really insignificant. God had a reason for that. But as we get to the New Testament, there are restrictions, not as far as who and where, but there are restrictions for us and guidelines for us as priests to follow. But all those limitations that we read in the Old Testament have been removed. It's not about a limited number of people. It's not about a limited uh, certain group of people. We are all priests. We are not limited in our access to God. We do not need someone to intervene between us and God now, except Jesus Christ, and he himself is God. And so we have direct access. We all are priests. We have direct access to his throne room. We have direct access to worship him directly without having to have anyone intervene for us. We don't need an earthly priest to intercede, an earthly priest to confess to, or an earthly priest to depend on for our spiritual well-being because we have Jesus Christ, our high priest, and we are priests in the order of Jesus Christ. Dr. Wayne Grudem, a noted professor and scholar, says there can no longer be an elite priesthood with claims of special access to God or special privileges in worship or in fellowship with God. None of us are closer to God because of our position. The pastor is not a priest over other people. The pastor is a priest with other priests under Jesus Christ. And that's the priesthood that God has ordained in the church. David Guzik said Peter's idea isn't that God has abandoned Israel or that they have no place in his redemptive plan but also that Christianity is in no way inferior to Judaism. So it's not that we're better than Jews because of the priesthood we have now, but it's also not that we're worse or less than the Jews in that system. It's different, but the same. And so I'm going to try to point out some of those differences and some of those similarities as we read, as Peter describes here. We're not priests in the sense that people understand the priest to be in the Catholic Church. Not, they take the position of intervening between God and people. That's not us. Now, we can intervene on other people's behalf in prayer to God, but they don't have to go through us. Okay, Christ is the one perfect high priest, and we are all priests within that order. And remember, that order of priests is not according to the law in the Old Testament, it is according to the order of Jesus Christ, our high priest, who is after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to look at him uh, probably next week. I don't know that we'll get to that this week. But as we read through this passage here in 1 Peter 2, I want you to see that Peter uses the word priesthood twice. The first one is in verse 5, and he says, we are a holy priesthood. And the second one is in verse 9, and he says, we are a royal priesthood priesthood. There are two different words to describe the same priesthood, and yet both of them help us to understand what we are, who we are as this priesthood in Christ, in the church. We're going to start with the holy priesthood. The word holy in verse 5 in the Greek is the word hagios, which means to be consecrated or separated for a specific purpose, and that purpose is something that is pure and blameless. That carries that connotation in the word holy. I think we understand that. We are separated apart to a holy and consecrated purpose. In other words, God calls us holy because we are to be different than the world around us. Now, that is what makes God different in that he is holy. He is a holy God. He has no sin. He cannot sin. He needs no redemption because he is redemption. 
Unfortunately, we are sinners because we have chosen to sin in our lives. But as we read in the first chapter of Peter, God has called us out of that sin to be holy as he is holy. And so Peter calls us a holy priesthood. We are to be pure in character, pure in action, blameless before men and God. That's what holy means. Now we say, well, we can't be holy like God is holy because we're not God. We can't be perfect. Well, then why does he call us to be holy? Because it's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Holy Spirit's never going to lead us or guide us or empower us to sin. He will only lead us and guide us and empower us to obey. And if we listen to the Holy Spirit, as Jesus did, we will be perfect. But we choose to sin. We don't always submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and that's why we're not holy. But that's the goal. That's what God has called us to be. We are to be pure in character, in action, blameless before men and God. Now, I mentioned already in the Old Testament priesthood, God said only certain men from the tribe of Levi, those people who were perfect physically, if you were missing a finger, you could not be a priest. If you had a scar on your face, you could not be a priest. And so God took the the perfect specimens, but he was giving us a picture of what we are supposed to be spiritually. We can't live as priests and say, well, you know, these few scars of sin really don't matter. These few things that I do, they're just small sins. They don't affect anybody. They don't matter. No, God is saying as holy priests, we need to strive to be perfect through the power of the Holy Spirit because it's possible and yet we rebel against it so often. But God has set us as a holy priesthood so that when people look at us, they see a pure and blameless priest, a representative of God Almighty. Now, here's the thing. Priests in the Old Testament were set up kind of as the example, the standard. This, these were the, the I Ching, the epitome of everything people were supposed to become. So when people looked at the Old Testament priests, Israelites looked at them, there's the model. We need to be holy like they are holy. Now, eventually the priesthood was corrupted, and they thought they were holy in and of themselves. And so they provided a very bad example for the people of Israel. But that's the point that God wants us to be. We are a holy priesthood because we are the example of holiness and pureness to others. And it's not just the pastor. I'm not the priest. I am a priest, just like you are a priest in God's church. And so all of us are called to be that example. When people look at us and they see the holiness of God in us, the Holy Spirit will impart to them that expectation of God that this is for all mankind. This is God's expectation for everyone is to be pure and holy. That is how he originally created man. And yet in understanding that God has called us to be pure and holy, then we start to realize, I can't do that. Has anybody ever said to you about you or about another Christian, that's not natural. That, that's not human. I don't know how they can go through that. I don't know how they can be that way in spite of the circumstances. It's because that is a supernatural character coming through us from the Holy Spirit. That kind of holiness, that kind of love, that kind of character is not natural to us. And so when people look at us, God's expectation is all people should be holy because that's the way God created them to be. Sinners, apart from God, obviously can't be. And it just punctuates then their need for Christ to wash them clean. And that's exactly what Peter says at the end of verse 9. Look at what he says. Our purpose is, in being priests, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not priests to have an exalted position in the church. We're priests so that we can exemplify the holiness that God has called all men to, to other people, so they will see their need of a Savior, of a high priest. 
who can intercede for them. And then through us, God receives all the praise and glory. Not just in our salvation, but in the salvation of other people. But it starts with our example. That's what God has called us to. That is why God saves us. You've heard me say this before. Our salvation is not so we can have a better life. Our salvation is not even so that we can go to heaven. Our salvation is so that God can, through us, demonstrate his character and love to other people. We are nothing but a channel, an ambassador, a representative of the God of heaven. And so our lives should show forth the character of Jesus Christ to other people. And that's what what Peter says here in verse 9, that we might show forth the goodness of God. So God's holiness is to be demonstrated in and through the lives of his holy priests. And that's why Peter, back in in chapter 1, said, Be ye holy as God is holy. Now, what kind of character, then, is required of a holy priesthood? Let me give you some examples based on the character of the Old Testament priests, okay? They were set apart, consecrated to a specific purpose, and so are we. So we got to look at their character, and if we look at the Old Testament priests, we have some examples there that actually give us some indication of what God has called us to be. First of all, the Old Testament priests dressed differently from the crowd. Now, if you read Exodus 28, God uses almost the entire chapter of Exodus 28 describing the clothing that the Old Testament priests were to wear. And I'm not going to spend all the time that we need to go into detail in all of that. But they had a tunic, they had a robe, they had a breastplate, they had a turban, they had all these things that they wore that God said, this is what it's supposed to be, this is what it's supposed to look like, this is how they're supposed to wear it. And he goes through an entire chapter, detail by detail, saying, this is what I want the the priests to wear. One of the pieces of clothing was a turban. They had to wear a turban on their head with a golden band across the front. And on that golden band, right on their forehead, was written, holiness unto the Lord. In other words, their whole purpose in being priests was to demonstrate the holiness of God and how they functioned. Same thing for us. I mean, the Holy Spirit in us is really that golden seal in our lives that declares holiness unto the Lord. That's our purpose. So that others can see his character in us. Now, that's one thing, but in addition to the specific clothing the priest would wear, God defined this. Um, The priest could not cut the corners of their beard. They could not wear their hair unkempt or loose. They could not make any marks on their skin. That's just a few of the things. And in fact, he applied those to all Jews, not just the priests. Now, I'm not saying that we should go find out what the high priests and the priests of Israel wore, and that's the way we should dress, okay? Or that we should not trim the corners of our beard or, or, you know, We have to keep our hair in a certain way or wear a turban everywhere we go. Okay, that's not the point. Those were symbols, pictures for us. The point is, when people looked at the priests and they recognized everything that they wore represented something that God wanted them to understand, those priests were different for a reason. They looked different for a reason. And so the point is that what they wore and looked like distinctly marked them as different from the common people of Israel and especially as different from the pagan cultures of the nations around them. So there's a specific principle that we could talk about in clothing here, obviously, but I want to broaden this out beyond just clothing. And so here's the question that comes to uh, with this idea of the priests is when other people look at me, what do they see? Do they see a person, not just my clothing, but my appearance, my demeanor, everything about me, do they see someone who's different from the culture, from the humanistic philosophy that that commands everything that the world around us does? Are we different? Now, it can start with our physical appearance, but there's more to it than that. 
Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us whether you eat or drink, we can include in that how you dress. Do all to the glory of God. How you behave in public. Do all to the glory of God. Your demeanor with people and how you treat them. Do all to the glory of God. Just your general attitudes. Do all to the glory of God. So when people look at us, do they see in us something different? Or do they just see another nicely dressed person who might be a good neighbor, but in every other way they wouldn't know that we're any different than the culture? What do people see when they look at us? We're supposed to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Psalm 132.9 says, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness. That applies to us. And it's not, again, about the specific type of clothes we wear. It's not about the specific colors we wear. But do people look at us and see the righteousness of God in how we dress and in how we act? When the psalmist says, let thy priest be clothed with righteousness, that literally means that when God looks at us, that's what he should see, Christ's righteousness. But also when men look at us, that's what they should see as well. That's not a normal person. There's something different about them. As holy priests, we are to be separate and different from a man-centered culture that exalts self and draws attention to itself. That's the purpose of man. That's humanism in a nutshell. It's all about me. Everything exists for me. I'm going to do everything so that I can benefit. That's the ultimate goal. And in doing that, I'm going to do things to draw attention to myself. Now, again, we could apply that to our dress. If our dress draws attention to ourself in a way that people look at us and go, what's wrong with that person? Oh, oh, look at that person. Look at how they're dressed. If our dress attracts that kind of attention, we've just defeated the purpose of being a priest. But it's about our behavior, our demeanor, our attitudes, everything about us. It shouldn't attract attention to us. It should draw attention to the God we serve. And so the clothing an appearance of our lifestyle should designate us as priests of God. And when I say clothing, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about what our character is clothed in. Is it me or is it Jesus Christ? Second of all, not just how the priests were dressed, but the priests were prepared by God for his service. In the Old Testament, Once priests were chosen and ordained, actually they were set apart. And Moses and Aaron told them, you take seven days. You have to go basically seclude yourself. Do not come out in public. Do not talk with anybody. They had to take seven days to consecrate themselves in their heart. Okay? And so they weren't allowed to serve in the temple or serve at all as a priest until that seven days was up. And then they were able to come out and begin their service in the temple or in the tabernacle. Now, while believers are sanctified, we are at at salvation, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or separates us for the purpose of God, okay? We've been made different in in our nature. We have been given that life of Christ that only believers can have, so we, and God looks at us through Jesus Christ then. So we are, in a sense, sanctified at that point, but Sanctification is a progressive thing as far as our daily activities, as far as our, our um, thinking, our attitudes are concerned. Okay? We don't get saved, and then all of a sudden we're perfect. Okay? I mean, I've asked this before. How many of you are perfect Christians? You haven't done anything wrong. You've never failed at all. Just in this last week, okay? we can, none of us can claim that. So that sanctification process is a progressive thing. And even though we are set apart by the Holy Spirit to sanctification, that is the goal. And we know when we get to heaven, it's all going to be made perfect. But in the process of our life, that cleansing, that fixing, that removing, that adding what needs to be done in our life continues. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But how many of you 
right after you were saved, the day after you were saved, or the day that you were saved. You were like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve the Lord. I know everything I need to know. I'm ready. Let's do it. No, it takes some time to learn. We must learn. In fact, that's why Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. It takes work to prepare ourselves. Not just to be a preacher or a teacher, but it takes work to prepare ourselves to serve the Lord every day in our lives. There's a time of preparation that is necessary as we get ready to serve God each day that if we don't do, then we will fail or be ineffective in our service because we're not on the same wavelength. You know, if we take that time in the morning and spend time in God's Word so He can speak to us and talk to Him in prayer, there's that preparation basically saying, Lord, I can't do this myself. I can't even live this day by myself without your help. And so I'm showing my dependence. I'm asking for your help to get through today and to do what you want me to do. Preparation to serve the Lord. Let me ask you this question about the condition of your heart. Let's just call it attitudes, okay? How many of you consistently always have the right attitude about circumstances, about people? We're perfect in that, right? We never get upset. We never get mad. We never hold grudges. We're, we're, our attitudes are perfect. Okay, we can't say that, okay? How many of you had the right attitude about coming to church today? Now, there's a Christian comedian, Ken Davis, and he describes the typical Christian family getting ready to come to church on a Sunday morning. And he says, basically, here's the picture in a Christian home as they're preparing to come to church, and the parents have their hands around the throat of a child saying, get ready and get ready now so we can be on time to church to learn about the love of Jesus. Right? And then, of course, once we're in the car, we're never late. I had five girls. Okay, it was just the opposite in my house. It seems like we were always late. And on your way to church, of course, Satan is never going to allow anybody to cut you off or to get in front of you and go too slow. And so as we get to church, all of us are in a perfect attitude of worship to the Lord, right? No, it seems like Sunday mornings, and I can testify in our house, it didn't happen all the time, but there were frequent times when it seemed like getting to church was the biggest problem of the week, and that is when we had the worst attitudes, walking in the door and we're getting out of the car and you walk in, hello, I'm, I'm here to serve the Lord. But there's preparation involved. It's not just on Sundays. It's every day. The priests had to prepare themselves. We need to prepare ourselves to serve the Lord. Again, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means there's preparation in God's word that we need to do just for everyday functions. It's not about learning the deep doctrines of Scripture. It's about, God, help me today. Give me something I can hold on to today. Give me the encouragement I need today to love the people I'm having trouble loving. And when we don't take the time to spiritually prepare ourselves for the day or the task ahead, Paul says, if you do it, you won't be ashamed. So by rights, if you don't do it, you're going to end up being ashamed of how you responded or how you act or how you tried to serve and ultimately failed. We cannot worship or serve the Lord as a priest of God without preparing our hearts beforehand. Number three, thirdly, the Old Testament priests were entirely dependent upon God for their everyday needs. If you study the priesthood of the Old Testament, you realize um, when God was uh, doling out and separating the promised land and giving the inheritance, the Levites didn't get anything. No land, no inheritance. And they didn't have a job. Their job was to serve in the temple, and so they didn't get paid other than what was brought into the temple. In fact, God 
had ordained that the tithe that Israel brought in, part of that was to be used to um, support the priests. Now, what happens if Israel doesn't faithfully tithe? Then the priests don't have anything. So their independence for their well-being and for just their livelihood was totally in God and obeying him. As far as their food was concerned, they ate generally what was brought in for sacrifice. God has described in, in the law that when a certain type of sacrifice was brought in, let's say a bowl or something, and they would cut the bowl up, they would put it on the altar, and, and this portion would be separated for the priests. And the rest of it would be burned. And so the priests could eat from that sacrifice. And that's how God provided for them. And so literally, in serving the Lord as a priest, their entire well-being and sustenance was dependent upon God. Now, for, our, uh, for us as believers, is our sustenance found in our jobs, our paycheck, what we have in our bank account or investments, what we can get at the grocery store? Is that really where our sustenance comes from? Well, physically, we go and buy those things, but who provided all that in the first place? God did. He created it. He put it where we can access it. He provided the job so that we can have the money to go buy those things. But we don't depend upon the gift. We depend upon the giver. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, why are you worried about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? Those are not important. What did he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God's going to take care of all the rest of it for you. Stop worrying about physically surviving and focus on serving. Focus on the Lord and what he wants. When we do that and focus on his kingdom first, then God will take care of our needs. And we may not have salmon and caviar every night, but we will have what we need. We may not have the biggest house, but we will have what we need. That's his promise. And so we're not to live focused on the physical, even our physical needs. We're to live focused on the spiritual service that God has called us to as a priesthood, like the priests. If they did their job faithfully, God provided for them. And that's the same for us. Paul, that's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. My God shall supply all your needs. The context of that is he's talking to people in Macedonia who just now sacrificed everything that they had, what little they had because they were abjectly poor, to give gifts to Paul and other people that were serving with him. And so they literally sacrificed their well-being to provide for others. And Paul's response was, my God shall supply all your need. And that's how we're supposed to live as believers, as priests in the church. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Lamentations 3.24, the Lord is my portion. Not what the Lord provides. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Not the gifts. My life, my sustenance is found in the giver. And so Peter himself, remember, reminds us in the first chapter and then at the end of chapter 2, we are not citizens of this earth. Remember, the priest didn't get an earthly inheritance in the promised land. Is our inheritance something we're going to get on this earth? <laughs> I hope not. This is going to fall apart. It's getting worse here. I don't want any part of it. What we have is an incorruptible inheritance, Peter says in, in uh, chapter 1 here. And so the priests not having an earthly inheritance totally dependent upon God is a picture of the same attitude that we're supposed to live in. And then fourthly and finally, the Old Testament priests were to remain undefiled. Now God, as I said, put certain restrictions on his priests and all of his people of Israel. And they had to keep the Ten Commandments, obviously. 
But these are other restrictions not only the priests had to follow, all of Israel had to follow. Number one, they, couldn't mar- they could only marry a virgin. Number two, they were never to touch anything that was dead. That was specifically for the priests. Number three, they couldn't eat anything with blood in it. They were not to have anything to do with wizards, sorcery, or anything related to the spirit world apart from God himself. They were to be fair in their business dealings, and on and on and on and on. 613 specific laws that God outlined for them. Now, remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, okay, here we have all these laws, which is the greatest? And Jesus basically said, no, all of these laws are premised on two principles. Number one, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Number two, if you're going to love God, then you'll love others as you love yourself. So it all comes down to Do we love God and do we love others? If we do, then we'll naturally follow the law of God. And remember, Jesus basically said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe unto you Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and cumin. They're they're spices. They would separate into ten sections and give one-tenth of their spices to make sure they were living by the letter of the law. And he says, you tithe mint and cumin and have omitted, omitted the weightier matters of the law, including judgment, mercy, faith. And he says, these things you have ought to done and not leave the others undone. Yes, those things you're doing are important to obey God in the letter of the law. But what about the spirit of the law? Do you really love God or do you love yourself? And so Jesus used that standard to define what is defiled or undefiled. Not how many commandments we've broken or kept. Not how much money we've put in the offering or how many times we show up at church. But do we really love God with all our heart? And does that show in how we love one another? James chapter 1 verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You want a definition of pure religion? Here it is. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Help people who can't pay you back. Help people who will do nothing for your reputation. Help people that Jesus was criticized for going to visit and help by the Pharisees. That's pure religion. Why? Because that's a demonstration of true love for other people. He says... Visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and then to keep himself unspotted from the world. Don't be like the culture. Be different. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 through 45, Jesus describes those who aren't part of his kingdom. And says, then he shall say unto them also on the left hand, those are the ones, the goats, it says sheep and the goats, but he says to them, depart from me, cursed and everlasting father, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. And then they shall answer him and say, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto you? Then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to the one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Now, what Jesus is not saying is, Because you mistreated and because you were mean to all of these lower life forms than you, therefore you're cursed. That's not what he said. What he said was to the condemned that they were unworthy and condemned because they ignored those in need. Not because we cursed or made fun of or or persecuted them. We ignored them. And he says, those people don't know what love is, and those people will not be in my kingdom. And so when we talk about being undefiled as priests of God, that's what Jesus is talking about as far as being defiled or undefiled. Not how many commandments we can keep. Do we love God and do we love one another, truly? So as God's priests in the church... We are to be sanctified in our character, 
in our actions, in our attitudes, in our appearance, in our testimony, and especially in our love. Be different. Everything about us should show people we are representing the high priest, Jesus Christ, because we are part of his priesthood. Are we really different in that way? Is that what people see when they look at us? A priest of Jesus Christ representing God Almighty of heaven, or, well, that's just another nice person. Yeah, they're, they're not mean. But, you know, they're, they're like a lot of the other people in the world who are not mean. There should be a significant difference in us as priests of Jesus Christ. And it is those things which specifically reflect the nature of God in our lives to others. That's the sole purpose for us being called to this priesthood. To show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're going to have to stop there. I'm not going to get to the functions of a priesthood. We'll take that up next time. But the question is, what do people see when they look at you? In everything about you, do they see a representative of Jesus Christ or do they just see another good person? There is a difference, and we should magnify that difference in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this truth today. You've challenged us with this idea of what we're supposed to be, what you expect of us, and yet we all fall short of that every day. It's not your fault. It's not because you haven't given us everything we need to be able to do that. It's because we ignore the resource of the Holy Spirit in our life. We ignore the resource of your word. We ignore the resource of connecting with you in prayer and knowing that you are there helping us to do what's right. And so we fail in being the priest that we should be. But Lord, forgive us and help us to trust you, to rely on you for everything, to have a different attitude about the life we live, knowing that there is more to come and there are people who are going to miss that if we don't do our job. So Lord, I pray that you convict us as we go from this place. Help us not to forget this, but to be doers and not just hearers. We give you praise and glory for what you've given us today, and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number...